You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Hey everybody, it's Nancy and guess what? Dan is still on vacation and he tells me he's having a fabulous time, which is really good, right? Uh, We are going to skip the opening intro rant for this week and just dive headfirst into your calls if that's all right with you. You can look forward to a freshly rested rant one week from today. And coming up on the Magnum version of the show, Dan gets a second opinion from Rob Walker, who writes the Workologist column for the New York Times about how to handle some super nasty, bigoted coworkers. And as always, on the Magnum and Micro, so many of your calls. Here we go. Hi, Dan. This is a 30-year-old woman living in Berlin. I'm calling with a problem I've had for a long time. I'm bisexual. Most of my friends, I guess, don't know about it. And I've always felt really awkward around my female friends and kind of women in general. There's something that feels a little bit creepy about it sometimes. I find myself tensing up when it's time to hug or kiss hello and goodbye or friendly touches. Of course, Germany being in the sauna together, it feels creepy. I feel like I'm staring and, in, I don't know, feeling the wrong way about this innocent contact as far as I know, these are all straight women who wouldn't be interested in me. I'm not interested in them, particularly. I mean, there are some very attractive women I know, but it's not like I'm pursuing them. So it's really become a problem. There's no way to be social like this and feel comfortable with other women. So I'm wondering if you have any way to sort of rejig my brain and my way of thinking about this. It'd be nice just to be natural express affection physically or otherwise when I feel like doing so. So you're bisexual, but not out. And you're assuming that all of your female friends who identify as straight or you assume are straight are straight. And some of them could just like you be bisexual, not that it matters, but you could come out as bi and that might help you be more comfortable. Uh, Once you're out as bi and you see that your friends are just as comfortable around you, um, and just as open around you, just as affectionate with you as they have ever been, it will communicate to you that it's not an issue for them. Why should it be an issue for you? That was my experience of coming out as gig gay a long time ago. And I was worried that it might make my uh, male friends uncomfortable or they might feel uncomfortable around me with incidental physical contact as friends sometimes have and less perhaps incidental intimate contact than female friends tend to have, but still, and it wasn't an issue. It wasn't a problem and their comfort helped make me more comfortable in my own skin, but they couldn't telegraph their comfort with me as an openly gay person until they knew I was one. Your friends don't know you are bi and right now you assume that they would feel squicked out or feel differently about you if they knew and da, 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 da. And the only way for you to see that that's not true is to be out to them. If you don't want to come out to them, you have the option of telling yourself that a lot of people are bi. A lot of women have same-sex attractions. It's very, very common. So some of the women that you're in the sauna with may also be bi or be attracted to other women. And they're fine. They're just rolling with the incidental female physical contact. You can also tell yourself that just because you are attracted to 
X gender doesn't mean you're attracted to everyone, every member of that gender. There are people that you are attracted to and they are small in number. I'm attracted to men, not all men, right? And so most men are safe around me. All men are actually safe around me because I believe in affirmative consent and other things. But most men are safe from being the objects of my desire or safe from any sort of mental images that might be conjured up when you see somebody that you might want to fuck because most men aren't anybody I want to fuck. And probably the same for you. Most women aren't anybody that you want to fuck and you aren't anyone most women want to fuck, which is not to say that you're unattractive. It's just that attraction is very subjective. And so the fact that you are bi shouldn't make them feel uncomfortable if they knew because the chances that you're attracted to any one of them are slim. And even if they are objectively attractive or your type, most of your friends are probably permanently and forever consigned to the friend sauna zone where it isn't about intimacy or attraction. Just calm the fuck down. I think your anxiety here is around your unresolved issues about your sexuality being hidden. 75-ish percent of people who are bi aren't out about being bi. 75-ish or more percent of people who are gay or lesbian are out about being gay or lesbian. One of the things that gets talked about when we talk about bi erasure, when we talk about biphobia, is the much worse health and mental health outcomes for people who are bi identified. And one of the things I've noticed in reading a lot about people who are bi, hearing from people who are bi, is you tend to read about and hear about and hear from people who are bi and out. And they all report being happier and more content and more satisfied in their relationships once they come out. I think one of the reasons we see poor health and mental health outcomes for bi people is because of the fucking closet that so many bi people are in. Come out. Come out and you will be more comfortable. And some of that comfort, again, we, you know, sometimes we like to pretend, those of us who are out, that we generated all that comfort ourselves. We came out and we claimed it and we got healthy and we did that. But some of that comfort didn't all come from inside. It was reflected back at us from the outside. We came out and we were nervous and we were worried about being rejected. We were worried about how everyone in our lives would react. And yeah, you lose some friends and some people go the fuck away. They were never your friends in the first place. But what you get from the people who still love you or the new people you meet who know you for who you really are from the get-go who love you is they're demonstrating to you comfort with the person that you are and that gets into under your skin and it becomes sort of an internal comfort with who you are. You grab that from other people, that affirmation, their comfort with you helps you be more comfortable with yourself and it becomes this positive feedback loop that just grows and rolls but it can't grow and it can't get rolling until you come out. Not that you have to come out if you don't want to come out, but maybe you would be more comfortable with who you are if you did. But if you don't, just chill the fuck out. When you see your friends in the sauna and you feel that little twinge of guilt or fraud syndrome or you're an imposter or you're behind enemy lines, just tell yourself that if there are more than four women in there, that you're not the only bi woman in there. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old straight guy living in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I've recently started hooking up with a woman who's engaged to be married. Uh, after years of pleading her partner, he has consented to allow her to at least open up her end of the relationship. He's not sleeping with anybody else. He had a few rules and a few stipulations about what she could and could not do, uh, which she relayed to me. 
And those rules are he doesn't want to know anything about who that person is. I know who he is tangentially. She's an ex-coworker of mine. Um, so I've seen him before. I've met him before. But he has no reason to know that uh, I'm hooking up with her. Um, that there be no marks left on her body. We're both into BDSM, and so I'm willing to respect that rule, too. So anything that's done that can leave a mark is done only to me and not to her. No problem there. Uh, the last rule, and the one that's kind of uh, the reason that I'm calling, is um, for us always to use protection, for us always to use a condom, which to this point uh, we have done, and that hasn't been a problem. And so far it's been really kinky, and it's been really fun and really edgy and a lot of fantasy play and meeting up in public and acting out uh, fantasies that we both share. And we're both really excited about it, and we text each other daily, and that's great. The issue has become, and my question for you is surrounding... Um, us sharing this fantasy of sleeping together without using a condom, of taking the condom off, and what that would mean kind of ethically and morally. Um, my fear is not about um, pregnancy. Specifically, her request is that I come inside of her. That's what she wants. She has a subdermal implant. She's not worried about getting pregnant, and I'm not really worried about that either. The fear is not also either really about STIs, but the, the bigger issue for me is actually about this ethical and and moral component for um, this man that she's engaged to. Um, so I guess my question is how big of a role, or I guess the ethical component for the person in my position, how pressing is that, that I sort of dictate and say, hey, wait a minute, your partner doesn't want you to do this, when in reality, the thought of doing this kind of transgressive and subversive thing and going against his wishes is, is really heightening the excitement surrounding getting together and sleeping together. So she's out of town for a few weeks, and I'm kind of left to mull that over. When she gets back, we're going to get a hotel room together, and she's wanting us to have sex without a condom. Um, so I'm calling to ask for advice and for a recommendation here. And if the response is, why are you aligning yourself with this person who is so ethically kind of seedy and shady that they would go against the wishes of a partner that they're engaged to be married with? I get that part of it, but it's pure lust for me. I'm not trying to date this person. Um, I'm, it's really heightening the intensity of my fantasy and I really want to do that. And that's being battled on the other side uh, by me with this need to be sort of moral and ethical and reasonable toward this other guy who I don't really know. Oh my God. I really don't know what to tell you. My first impulse is to say, oh, you have this moral obligation to this person that you've never met. And sometimes birth control methods, even the, the best ones can fail of the failure rate for the method that you describe is extremely slim. STIs, you say they're not a concern for you, but if she's lying to her fiancé about what she intends to do to you or with you, is she lying to you about what she might be doing with other people? Are there other people in the mix that you don't know about? You say that she's away. Where is she? Who is she with? Is she with her fiancé? Is she off on her own? So it's not just about protecting the fiancé from a sexually transmitted infection that she might acquire from you, but also condoms are about protecting you from a sexually transmitted infection you might acquire from her. All that said, the harm in this is probably if she is being faithful-ish to you in your dom-sub relationship, if you are her only other partner, the harm in this is only perhaps hypothetical or psychological if he should find out that this transgression occurred. Often when people open up relationships, they lay down markers, they draw lines that to others can seem semi-arbitrary. And I don't think if you have sex with other people, you have to use a condom is arbitrary at all. I think that's entirely reasonable around safety. 
and around primacy and in a heterosexual relationship around paternity. I think drawing a line there is reasonable. What's exciting for you here is not coming inside her. It's coming inside her knowing that that's breaking the rules. And if you didn't have this rule, if this wasn't something that she had agreed to, if going condom free was fine with her fiance, so long as she was on this hyper effective method of birth control and there was only you and you had tested, maybe they would have a rule about never in our bed. And the fantasy, the transgressive fantasy for her and for you now would be while he was out of town or at work to sneak into their house and fuck in their bed despite that being a hard rule that he laid down. And that's a really common rule with a lot of people in open relationships. Never in our house, never in our bed, never somebody that we both know, never anyone I know socially. You have to use a condom. Like these are the sort of standard issue rules that people lay down for their own emotional safety. And feeling like my partner can honor these even if they appear to others or even if they actually are completely arbitrary rules, my partner dancing around those rules demonstrates to me that my partner, even though they're fucking other people, cares about me most. And my safety physically or my emotional safety is their primary concern. And often when people lay down these arbitrary rules, when it first starts, they loosen them as it goes on. They see their partner as primarily concerned with their emotional and physical safety, and then these hard rules, never in our bed, never anybody both know, never anybody you're going to see ever again, they tend to get looser or be set aside. The odds that this particular rule would be set aside, though, don't come in her, are pretty slim. All that said, if I were in your shoes, I wouldn't do it myself. This isn't the kind of transgression that I would find particularly sexy. It's the kind of transgression that I would find unsexy, not in the doing of it, but in the fact that the person wants to transgress with me in this way against their fiance, against their primary partner. And if they're going to transgress this way against their primary partner and their wishes and their physical safety and their emotional security, how are they going to treat me? If this is how they treat the person they love most in the world and they're going to marry, they're going to transgress in this way against that person. What sort of Physical or emotional safety am I going to have in this relationship? It is a relationship that you have with her. It would leave me feeling as the fuck buddy, not great and not safe myself in this person's hands. I can see what's sexy about it. If I were you, I would not do it. If I were you, I would continue to play with it, to play around with it, to try to leverage this desire that she has for you to come in her, not to get her to transgress, not to get her to let you come in her, but to get her to continue to negotiate with her fiance about what is or is not permissible. This is something she really wants. She really wants me to come in her. She's really going to have to do the work of getting the okay for that to happen. And then the act of coming in her once she's got the okay isn't transgressive, but the act of going and getting that permission that is transgressive. That is That itself can be sexy because she's willing to go back into her primary relationship and reopen these negotiations because she wants your come in her that badly. That you can eroticize that dynamic too so that the transgression is there and it's sexy. But then in the moment when you are ejaculating inside her, it is your victory lap. And it itself is not the transgression, but there were transgressions that were eroticized and sexy leading up to that moment. Hi, Dan. I'm a 
23-year-old bisexual female in the New England area. I'm new in the kink community. I made a FetLife profile. I recently started camming. So I've basically um, been getting my toes wet in the kink community. I started a few different like play relationships with doms, and I happen to have not the greatest experience with one. I did happen to journal a little bit about it, and I, I guess this comes with the territory. Uh, I didn't necessarily think he would see it because he had since deleted me. Um, I didn't mention his name or link his profile or anything like that. You would only ever know it was him if you had very intimate details of who I might have been playing with, which no one did. There was nothing on my account that would ever give that away. But he did find out. He wrote this very, very um, aggressive piece of writing about me. And it's not necessarily, I don't really care what he calls me. He did call me a cunt. He called me a dirty cam whore and a slut. It's that he kind of has a bit of a falling on set, I guess. I didn't realize um, how much of one until now that he linked to my profile and my webcam and I have all these people harassing me. He sent a text earlier. Um, he didn't say he was going to out me. He didn't say that exactly, but just the, the way, the implications he was making, it almost sounded like he would if he felt he needed to. So I guess, I, I don't know. I'm just kind of a mess. I've chewed basically two packs of gum at work today, just kind of, worried I'm going to be outed. I don't, I just don't know, I guess, what to do in this situation. I'm thinking I should delete my profile. Um, I don't have face pictures or anything. I mean, my friend did mention that is letting him win, but at the same time, um, it's my life. It's not a game. So I guess I just wanted to get your advice on um, how to deal with that situation. I'm sure it might come up again in the past if I'm in a community like this, um, I might take myself out of the community for a while. But, yeah, just because, I mean, he did link directly to my profile. It was almost like he was calling these people to do something. You can and perhaps should report him to management at FetLife. He's outing you. He's retaliating against you. He's using misogynistic hate speech to attack you. And why? Because you wrote about him in a journal that he went and found. You wrote about your experience with him and you have a right to your experiences and your impressions of those experiences and to share them. But you wrote about it, taking you at your word, discreetly and not in a way that would out him. And he responds after stumbling across this by outing you, by endangering you, by outing you as having done camming, doing a, a, a form of sex work, by calling you a cunt. Hopefully that's not okay at FetLife. Hopefully that's not okay with the people who run that social network. For kinksters, that kind of reaction, that kind of retaliation, hopefully is not okay. And that's what I want to tell you to do. Go get him, complain about him, talk to Fat Life about what he's doing to you, and maybe see if they won't shut down his account or spank him or scold him or tell him to knock it the fuck off and leave you the fuck alone. On the other hand, he's somebody who clearly has issues with women, who clearly has no respect for boundaries, has no respect for you, has no respect for the people he plays with if he can't handle 
someone having played with him and not having had a great experience and then having a right to their experience, a right to talk about it and talk about it discreetly. He has his reaction to that is to out you and call you cunt and shame you for the work that you do. The odds that he'll keep coming at you if you complain about him, if you get fat life to shut him down are really high. It's like getting into a fistfight with somebody who, before the fight starts, smears themselves with human feces. Like you could win that fistfight, but you're going to walk away covered in shit. And so you might win the fight with him to get him kicked off FetLife, but you're going to walk away covered with shit and he's going to continue past being prologue, flinging shit at you. And is that worth it? You have to decide that for yourself. If going after this guy for what he's done to you is worth risking this guy continuing to come at you in this way, you are perhaps because of the camming vulnerable unfortunately, because of the stigma around sex work, the stigma around pornography, appearing in pornography. There's no stigma around consuming pornography despite the best efforts of the Mormon church to gin them up. There's no stigma about consuming it, but there is a double standard stigma bullshit thing about people who appear in pornography. And he could hang that around your neck and that could have consequences for you throughout your life. You're only 23 years old. And what kind of a vendetta is this guy going to Carry forward. I hate saying this. I, I, I hate telling you that you might want to just walk the fuck away. You might just want to delete your account because I hate letting someone who bullies women like this win. And I hope the other women on FetLife see what he's done to you and then conclude that he's not worth playing with. He's risky to play with because – what if you have a bad experience with him and then you just tell a friend because you need to unload and you need to get that off your chest and you have a right to your experiences and a right to decompress and, and talk about them and that somehow through some asshole game of telephone gets back to him. Not that you journaled about it in a public place but that you didn't have a good time and you talked about it with somebody and then he comes after you. I don't understand how anyone could see what he's doing to you on Fat Life and ever want to be in this man's presence ever again or risk sleeping with this man. But – you have to decide for yourself, caller, if the satisfaction of getting him kicked off that life or shut down, or the, the satisfaction of holding him accountable for his actions, and the increased safety that that would create for other women in that community, which would be great, if that is worth risking more retaliation, more shit being flung at him by you, perhaps for many, many years to come. That's a decision you're going to have to make. It's not one that I can make for you. Hi, Dan. So I'm in a relationship with two guys. They are married to each other. We started dating about two months ago, and it seems like everything's going great. They were in an open relationship, but then we decided to kind of close it. So now it's really just the three of us. But I have fears that Maybe, I don't know, maybe they'll find someone better and decide to move on or leave me in the past. But I don't know how to express these concerns. And I was wondering, how would I be able to express these concerns without seeming too needy, I guess? I don't mean to at all by any means, but it's just a big fear and I don't want... I like the fact that we're in a closed relationship. I like the fact that it's just us three. 
but I'm afraid, what if I'm not enough? I just really want to know how to express these concerns without seeming too needy, I guess. That question, what if I'm not enough, you tend to hear more frequently from people who are coupled. You know, he watches porn and makes me feel like I'm not enough. Or I saw her flirting with her personal trainer at the gym or whatever the fuck. I don't know why that's always the example I use. Maybe I want to fuck my personal trainer at the gym. So I saw her flirting with her personal trainer at the gym and it made me feel inadequate or as if I'm not enough for her. And my answer in those circumstances is always, you're not enough for her. You're not enough for him. No one is enough for anyone else. That's why when we pair up, we don't move into underground bunkers and never see another human being again for as long as we shall live, whether we're monogamous or not monogamous. Uh, no one person can be all things sexually to another person. Extending that to your situation, no one person can be all things sexually to two other people. That there are things you bring to the table. Obviously, they like you if they were willing to become triad monogamous, however that would be defined, triad monogamy. They like you enough to bring you into their relationship, to make you a part of their life, and to decide, at least for now, that you're it. That there's not going to be anyone else. That you guys are going to be perhaps fluid bonded, emotionally bonded, and you're going to be a thing, the three of you. And you have to relax and enjoy that for as long as it lasts. Maybe it'll last for the rest of your life. Maybe it'll last for a year or two. Maybe it'll last for five or ten years. And then you will move on or they will move on. And if you can stick the dismount, you will have these guys in your life as friends, as intimate friends, for the rest of your life. Maybe you won't always have them in your life in the way that you have them in your life right now, or maybe you will, but wringing your hands about it is no insurance policy. It, it doesn't compel them to stay with you forever. So you can go to them and say, I think you have a right to say as the non-married part of this triad, sometimes I feel a little insecure about my role, about my place uh, in this relationship. You guys are married to each other and I am the addition, I am the add-on, and sometimes that makes me feel a little insecure. And you can ask for some reassurance, but you can't bathe in a constant stream of reassurance because that will exhaust them. That will make you less attractive over time if they're constantly having to comfort and reassure you about their commitment to you. Enjoy their commitment to you. They've made a commitment to you. You've made a commitment to them. Maybe they will meet somebody else. Maybe you will meet somebody else and want to move on. Even if you were married to one of them and the other one didn't exist, even if you were one half of that married couple, that risk that somebody better might come along and somebody might want to move on is still present. It ends marriages. It ends partnerships. It breaks up couples all the time. There are no guarantees. There's only right now. And right now, you love them, and they love you, and it's working. So relax. Let it work. Don't worry about how the wheels might come off the car. The brand new car. The wheels probably aren't going to come off it anytime soon. And you're just spoiling the ride. If all you can do as you zoom down the highway to torture this metaphor to death is worry about the wheels coming off. You just have to accept uncertainty. It'll work for as long as it works, and then it won't work anymore. It'll go for as long as it goes, and then it won't go anymore. In the meantime, while it's going, enjoy. Hi, Dan. Late 20s straight guy. I've been having 
trouble internalizing your breakup advice, I guess. About a month ago, my girlfriend of, we're on and off, but all together, we were probably together five years, uh, broke up with me. And like I was, I was doing the right things, I think. I was keeping busy. I was bitching to friends, but keeping that to a minimum. I was staying off Facebook. And I happened to see her at a mutual friend's going away party like a week ago. And we shared all the five words and she left right afterwards. And I feel like all of the progress I've made has gone back to negative one. I guess I'm wondering if you have any specific advice for dealing with coming out of a long-term relationship because like it felt like I was I was doing so well, and then this like this tiniest thing has rattled me. <laughs> like I feel like a child. Like this isn't this isn't how adults react to like seeing an ex, right? I don't remember where I read it, but I read it a long time ago that you need a month for every year you were together to get over somebody. You were in a five-year relationship with this woman. You broke up a month ago, four weeks ago, and you saw her at a party and you were rattled. Of course you were rattled by that. It's only been four weeks. The stuff that you were doing, you know, sharing with friends but not overburdening them, getting out of the house, going to movies, eating ice cream, hitting the gym, whatever it is, whatever you need to do, go for bike rides, go for runs, be out, be active, you know, wallow every once in a while in your feelings, feel the shit out of your feelings, but keep moving forward, keep swimming, be a shark. All that stuff that you were doing, it was the right stuff to do. You just hadn't been doing it long enough before you saw her not to be rattled by being in her presence. And you know what? The first time you see someone after a breakup, no matter how much time has passed, no matter how over it you think you are, it's going to unsettle you. You will be rattled for a moment. So you haven't failed at getting over a breakup because seeing her rattled you. Even if it was five months from now and you saw her for the first time, you might have been rattled. Take comfort. Give it time. Give it more time. Keep doing what you were doing. I promise you that in time, it'll work. And it may take a few more meetings a few more mutual friends going away parties or weddings or christenings or whatever the fucks of being in her presence for it, not to shake you the way it clearly shook you this time, but you'll always probably be a little unnerved by it, but it'll become a stone in your shoe, not a giant boulder falling on your fucking head. And you will learn to live with it and walk with it in time. Okay, Dan, I have this amazing thing to share. So I'm gay from California and uh, my husband and I have been together 13 years, married six years, opened up a relationship maybe seven years ago. And we have one of those open relationships that's kind of similar to a lot of your callers where I'm the more sexually active one. I'm the one that wants to be out there playing. And he's been, he's tried and dabbled and had fun and lots of good times. We've had good times together. But generally, he was always pretty reluctant about me going out and, um, you know, kind of, he would say it was okay, and then after the fact, it wasn't okay. And he always really wanted it to be an, um, a completely open, honest, sharing everything. I would share things, and then he would have little mini freakouts. And we struggled with like that for many, many years, trying to figure out how to navigate this open relationship thing. Well, here's the really cool trick that we came up with, and it was entirely his idea. His idea was, after I go and have my experience, 
to write it up for him, I sent him a text message or an email, but to write it up as erotic fiction, as in, <laughs> you know, to like really punch up the drama of it and the play of it. And the thing is, when I do it that way, it turns him on in a really big way. He's kind of into erotic fiction. It's a thing he likes. And so it's become this really wonderful thing where, like, I will go out there and have an adventure. I can use whatever writing skills I may or may not have to write it up for him. He feels like I'm communicating with him. It's suddenly sexy for him. And it's been just awesome. You know, where in the past he really struggled with open relationships. It's been a big joy the past six months or so. And I thought maybe your listeners like to hear that. What an awesome and creative solution. And thank you for sharing. Clearly, you taking your experiences and translating them into erotic fiction gives it a gloss. It gives it a little bit of distance that allows your partner to really relax and enjoy it. And he also sees that you're making an effort, not just coming home and unloading on him or sharing or telling him about what just happened to you, your experience, but that you're packaging it for him in a way that requires some care and consideration and effort on your part. And that, I think, that demonstration of his primacy, his importance, like we talked about earlier in an open relationship, that makes him feel more comfortable about you stepping out, that you then take those experiences and you make something else out of them for him demonstrates to him that you care about him and his safety and his security and his pleasure and his sex life too and his lust and how wonderful that you guys found this solution that works for you and I think it's uh, terrific and thanks for sharing again. Hey Dan, this is a 28-year-old lesbian from Ohio. Me and my fiance of six years, six and a half years, just got engaged and we're planning our wedding and we're deciding that uh, we would like to not invite any Trump supporters now that Pence is on the ticket because of his views against gay marriage and gays in general and the transgender community. My mom is very angry about this. She's not a Trump supporter at all, but she thinks that we should invite them no matter what to make sure that there's no confrontation happening in the family. I'm wondering what your views on this. Are we taking it too far that we don't want to invite someone who is voting for something that is against everything that our love and our wedding, we want to represent. Your call reminds me of a wedding I went to some years ago now for a lovely straight couple, great friends of uh, Terry's and mine, and their family, the bride's family, was coming up to the wedding, and there had just been an anti-gay marriage referendum in their state, and her whole family, for the most part, all voted to ban same-sex marriage, to ban gay marriage in the state where they all live, the state where she came from. And the problem here was that a lot of the couple's friends who were also going to be at the wedding were gay. They knew a lot of gay people and there would be a lot of gay couples at that wedding, including gay couples <coughs> with children at that wedding. And they were worried about how that would go and how their gay friends would feel about it. It was really tense. And what they did at their wedding – they performed this little jujitsu and it was really smart. There was a reading at the wedding and they invited one of their gay friends to give the reading. And it was just this beautiful uh, statement about marriage and what marriage means and what it means to people emotionally and its function socially and its importance to children. But it's important as recognizing that couple's bond, that couple's love and the importance of that public recognition an affirmation of that couple's love and commitment to one another. And the person did the whole reading. And then at the end of each of the readings that had preceded it, they identified where that particular passage 
had come from, where the reading came from. And that reading came from the Massachusetts Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage in that state. And it was kind of this not quite a fuck you to the anti-gay marriage crowd at the wedding, but a trick because everybody's just nodding along in agreement with this statement about marriage. And then they find out that it's from this decision legalizing same-sex marriage in Massachusetts. And it created a little cognitive dissonance. Another thing at that wedding that created a little cognitive dissonance was all of these people who had voted for this anti-gay marriage law who didn't really know or hadn't had much cause to interact with gay people were at the wedding with all these gay people, some of whom were there with their children and their families and were clearly not monsters and were there to celebrate marriage, not to destroy marriage in the family. And were only too delighted to see this straight couple getting married. And I thought, you know, I was at that wedding and I thought that that was the right way to go, not to exclude those family members, but to include them and to dilute them in a way and to just through those social interactions, perhaps educate them, perhaps help them see the error of their ways, which is exactly what came to pass in the case of this particular family. So I want to side with your mother, but not for the reasons your mother cites, not just to keep the peace. You have to invite your shitty Trump supporting relatives, but to get under their skin to work on them because that's what the whole marriage equality movement has been about. It's been taking these people who either oppose marriage equality or support candidates and parties that oppose marriage equality and peel them off, not by screaming at them, not by excluding them, but by interacting with them, by talking to them, by persuading them, by being ourselves in those families and demonstrating them through how we live our lives that their fears are unfounded and their support for people who would strip us of our right to marry is not something that they can square with loving and supporting us. So invite people to your wedding that you would like to be at your wedding without asking them first who they're voting for in November. Then whip into your wedding something about marriage equality that will hopefully reach them and speak to them. And you can, as the couple, you can approach your relatives who are voting for Trump and gently importune them not to because Trump has pledged and the Republican Party has pledged to overturn marriage equality, to appoint justices to the Supreme Court who will overturn Obergefell, the now one year and some weeks old decision legalizing marriage equality in all 50 states. And so here you are at our wedding and thank you for coming. If you would like us to continue to be legally married in this country, please reconsider your vote this November. That would be the loveliest wedding present for us that you could possibly give us. Not to vote for who we're telling you to, but just to reconsider who you're voting for. Because if you love and support us, really, at the end of the day, you can't vote for him. Everybody with an advice column or a sex advice podcast likes to pretend the conceit is we are the only advisor that anyone would ever want to turn to, the only advice columnist on earth. And that is, of course, not true. There's plenty of people out there slogging away in the advice racket. And every once in a while, we like to invite another advice columnist onto the show for a little segment we call Second Opinion. Joining us this time for Second Opinion, Rob Walker, who writes the Workologist advice column every other week in the Sunday business section of the New York Times. He also writes for Design Observer and many other publications, and he lives in New Orleans. And you can find him on Twitter at not Rob 
Walker. Hey, I like your Twitter handle. It's a little like mine. Fake Dan Savage, not Rob Walker. <laughs> kind of the same idea, yeah. And uh, uh, I guess at the time, I wasn't sure if Twitter was really going to matter. But um, now I'm stuck with it. I just wanted to throw off the haters. Like, hey, maybe this isn't really <laughs> me. Maybe you shouldn't be too mean because I could be an innocent Dan Savage. <laughs> it's a good move. So the advice racket, the advice column racket, how did you stumble into it? Uh, very backwards, um, I, which I think your story is similar. I don't. I wasn't seeking it. Uh, in my case, uh, it was um, because an editor that I uh, had given a lot of advice to over the years <laughs> uh, started uh, being the editor of the Sunday Times business section, and she was talking to me about uh, having an advice for work at you know a dear dear Abby of the workplace or whatever, and I gave her my opinions about that. And then she finally said, well, why don't, why don't you do it? And I said, well, I don't really, I mean, I, the, the funniest thing about me in the column is that I have not worked in an office for 15 or 16 years, but, um, but I do give a lot of advice to friends, you know? So I actually haven't had sex for 15 or 20 years. So <laughs> we're both equally unqualified in our particular advice column genres. We mean well. That's the important thing. <laughs> and as I'm always pointing out to people, the only qualification you need to give advice is that some fool asked you for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look it up in the dictionary. Advice. Opinion about what could or should be done. We are all entitled to our opinions and one day in the future. Well, now with the web, everyone is entitled to start their own advice column if they, they want. How long, have, true. how long have you been writing Workologist? Uh, we're coming up on three years, so it's still relatively new. I don't, I don't feel burned out on it yet. I still enjoy it quite a bit. Well, the advice column gig is one I don't think anyone ever really burns out on. Emily Yalfi, uh, who retired from being Dear Prudence after a good 10-year run, she says that she was done, that she'd said everything she needed to say, but I'm a little like Ann Landers. Maybe you will be too. <laughs> they will pry my advice column out of my cold, dead hands one day at the same yeah. time that they have to pry my wig off my head, just like they did Ann Landers. Well, there's always something new. I mean, just when you think that you've heard it all, for me anyway, there's always something new. So, so as long as that continues to be the case, and, you know, I love to hear myself talk. So, uh... <laughs> Well, we've lined up a couple of questions for you, but before we get to them, I'm going to ask you the question that I get asked anytime anyone finds out I write an advice column or I'm getting interviewed about the advice column. What's the craziest question you ever got? The way I would answer that is that it's kind of a variation on something that we're going to talk about, but like the, the, I'm fascinated by the, the by how lawsuit happy people are and what they want to sue their employer for, mm-hmm. um, which just really boils down to like the most mundane. Like, can I? My the, the person next to me has uh, smells. Uh, is, is there a legal <laughs> a legal remedy <laughs> remedy that I can pursue for this? I don't know where that comes from. I guess people they, maybe they've seen too much law and order. Like I, I don't know. I don't know why they think that lawsuits. If you've ever actually been involved in a lawsuit, you know it's actually the worst possible way to resolve anything. It's but, too bad uh, it's not the seventeenth century still because you could just accuse your coworker of being a witch and then they would dunk her in the river. Yeah, 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 or duels, something like that, I think would actually be a more um, logical. (laughs) But, you know, the dunk in the river thing would take care of the BO at least that week. I get, yeah, it's maybe unfair of me to put that question to you because I get asked that question all the time. Craziest question you ever got, and I always blank on it. I'm like, uh, I have the same reaction you did. So don't feel like you're new at this and that's why you don't have an answer. Like, I've been doing this for 25 years and I don't have an answer. 
Um, yeah, it's patterns. It's it's like you know, and and the the person who stinks who sits next to you, like variations on that. Like the uh, the most depressing thing about the inbox is 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 the, so the two things. One is that everyone wants to sue everyone, and two is that everyone seems to have a coworker with some disgusting habit that I would really that I just didn't need to know about. So, how many questions do you get a week at the workologist? Uh, it varies. There are weeks when it's you know in the dozens, but then there are weeks when it's like just three or something. So it's, it really depends. And, and it comes in waves. I don't know if you get this, but people frequently react to whatever, whatever you just answered. Mm -hmm. They have some similar, very similar dilemma that, um, and they don't seem to realize that if you just answered a very similar question, you can't answer the same question next week. (laughs) That's the last thing I want. And then occasionally there are ones I had someone who, who wrote in who had had an experience where they had a boss say, oh, we're, you know, when we get that business, we'll just Jew them down. Uh, and like, what do I do about that? <laughs> the, person was, the person was Jewish, which doesn't actually matter either way. Like, you just shouldn't be using language. Like, like well, how do I respond to this kind of thing? And I had what I had to say about that. And I was shocked at the number of responses I got to, like, people writing in saying, oh, that you should just let it slide. Hmm. Uh, I had to do a second column on that because uh, I strongly uh, disagree with that. I, I actually want to affirm your advice there and encourage people not to let that slide because of my yeah. own personal experience with that phrase, being that I first heard it when I was 14 or 15 years old and used it myself for a decade in front of I don't know how many different people because I used to like to go to antique stores and resale shops and, and, and uh, junk sales. And I used that phrase a lot, but I thought I was saying chew him down like move your yeah, mouth this, talk yeah, him down yeah. and that's you yeah. know, talk him down i thought it was chew him down and i was saying c-h-e-w him down <laughs> for a decade but people were hearing chew him down and finally somebody said something to me and i was so mortified yeah 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 i think that's one of the reasons why you can't you can't let that go and i mean because i had i had similar i had a couple of readers who said very similar things that then and actually the first the first time i heard that i was like you're full of shit you you didn't think that (laughs) but then once i saw like oh no this is a thing that uh that, that people don't even yeah they don't even know what they literally don't know what they're saying homonyms are dangerous that's the yeah, it turns out. <laughs> All right, we have a couple of questions for you, one in your wheelhouse, one in mine. Here we go. Hey, Dan, I am calling in regards to some issues I am experiencing at my new job right now. I have been working in the warehouse area of a small distribution company that comprises about 30 of the 100 total employees. During the hiring process, I was told that they talk a little bit differently back in the warehouse, and they asked if I was comfortable with that. I just got out of the Army as an infantry officer, so I was well-versed in how guys can interact with each other at work. This new job, though, is so much worse than any day I experienced in the Army. There's not a day goes by that I don't hear some sort of hate speech directed at the LGBTQ community, women, or any race that isn't white. Guys will come into work and say, what's up, faggots? Or talk about how their wives aren't putting, putting out back home. Or whenever we are out doing deliveries, I am asked if I would fuck a female pedestrian as we drive by, or I'm asked how many of the female customer service reps that I would fuck. When I was in the Army, if I ever heard any of my men make disparaging comments, I would immediately crush them, as I know how bad that can be for morale and that people do not deserve to be treated in such ways. Being a new employee, I unfortunately don't have that leadership clout. I would go to one of my immediate three supervisors, but they have three worst individuals at making these comments. 
Not only do they allow it, but they take part in it and encourage this behavior. Having been there now for two months and remained relatively quiet up to this point, I am not going to remain quiet anymore if I hear individuals speak out this way. But it seems like this is a systemic issue within the company, and I feel like I need to go talk to our HR rep who works in the office area. I'm wondering if you think there's anything else I can do to help make this a better working environment for everybody. So what can he do to make uh, his work environment a better and safer place for everybody? Okay, I used to file a lawsuit. <laughs> okay, <laughs> just kidding. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I guess uh, my impression is that he is he is not gay. Is that your impression? My impression is he is not himself LGBT, probably not yeah. himself a person of color, but right. I can't know that. I assume so, they're insulting everyone who's different from them and that would have right. been him. right. So that makes it slightly more ambiguous because the, the way that the NFL, I should really say this very clearly, I'm not a lawyer. So um, th- there are some law related issues around this. And the first thing I would say to this, that this person might want to do is actually contact the, whatever the local office or even just call the 800 like of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and talk to them about this scenario. Now, the way that those laws are written is really about, you know, discrimination that has workplace consequences for you. So in other words, if there's, if you are a member of the LGBT community, sorry, I sounded like Donald Trump there for a second. Uh, if you are a member of the LGBT community <laughs> um, and you're hearing that kind of talk, and that is definitely a hostile work environment and you definitely have a legitimate complaint, et cetera. I actually don't know what the, law is around, well, this just makes me, you know, this is just really uncomfortable, but I think it's worth, I think it's worth going to someone like that and having that conversation and then taking the results of that conversation to a manager as high up as you're comfortable going. Um, we had a question, I had a question on the column once that was somewhat similar to this involving, um, you know, kind of wolfy common sex discrimination got like not not like discriminated but but uh you know hey sexy girls and this kind of thing mm-hmm. um and just wolfy comments and what can you do about that and you you have that conversation and and like take it to the highest manager that you're comfortable going to um and and make it clear that you have been in contact with the EEOC about it which kind of puts it on the uh radar that like I mean, what they're doing at that company is disastrously stupid, and they're going to get in trouble. That's that's what I was thinking he might want. Not going from I'm such a delicate flower that I can't hear these things without wilting. I was in the fucking army. But you you do realize that someday someone's going to come in here and sue you guys, and it's going to cost you a lot of fucking money. And you'll have absolutely nothing to defend your – because you can, you can do all you want about like, hey, there's some rival talk or whatever, but that's not going to help you. Yeah, that, that's not a get-out-of-lawsuit-free card, just warning new employees. No, it, it really isn't. It really isn't. And and then the re- the reason to, to – to, and also the reason to sort of be like, I've been in touch with the EEOC about this, is that if they say, okay, you're fired, then you are in a position where, like, okay, this is a pretty clear-cut case of, you know, this hostile work environment and, and retaliation for objecting to it. So – the last thing I want to say about it is that he, because he mentioned going to HR and this is one of my recurring themes is that like, you can go to HR if you want to, and it's different at every company, but frequently you really need to remember that HR people, people have this idea that HR is like 
a psychologist or a therapist who's there to help you or like an ombudsman or an advocate for employees. Mm-hmm. That is very, very often not the case. HR works for management. There is no obligation for them to be discreet or give you it, but like they could, you could walk out of that office and they could go straight to the manager and you could be fired, you know? And at that point you haven't gone out to the EEOC or anything like that. And it's, you're in a much more ambiguous case. Like HR sometimes is your friend, but HR often isn't your friend. You have to sort of use your judgment on like, do you really trust this person? I think his instincts are right that like going directly to the direct managers who are part of the problem won't help. But you want to kind of get your facts together and go over their head. And if you want to talk to HR along the way, that's fine. But I would talk to the EEOC first and get as much clarity as you can and be blunt about the fact that you've done that. All right. That's great advice. I'm glad you were here. You're much more qualified to address that than I am. Now we're going to play you one. We're going to take a question that's more up my alley. Hi, Dan. I am a 27-year-old female living in the South. Um, I have been married for about five and a half years. We have a two and a half year old daughter. Uh, We married when we both were very conservative and religious. Uh, We were wait till marriagers or at least wait for intercourse until marriagers. And uh, we are not that way anymore. We are kind of the opposite of that. But our sex life has been problematic since the beginning. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, that whole waiting till marriage thing kind of fucks you up. So basically, we've discovered that we have very mismatched sex drives. I am much, much more sexual than he is. I am way more into learning about sex and, you know, listening to your podcast has been a huge part of that. And um, he just kind of seems like the most vanilla person on the planet. Um, I mean, the fact that he got to age 31 without having intercourse, you know, kind of says that he didn't have a huge sex drive. We've tried, or I've tried lots of things to try to get him to be more sexual. And, you know, sometimes they work for a very short time, like maybe a month or two and sometimes not. But, you know, having a two-year-old and having a active sex life is hard enough on its own. But having that when you've got all this you know, fucked up history and mismatched sex drives makes it even worse. So just kind of looking for some advice. Um, I don't know if you've got any advice specifically for people who don't have a ton of sexual experience. Because I think that's part of our problem is that for a long time, like neither one of us knew what the hell we were doing. Um, And we're still learning, but learning from another person who doesn't really know what they're doing isn't the best way. Okay, Rob, advice for this woman. Get in a time machine and fuck a bunch of people before you got married and had a baby. That would be my advice. Yeah, it's not helpful. She seems to know that the real problem is uh, is uh, unsolvable, which is that it was a big mistake to wait till getting married. Till, um, I mean, it sounds like, uh, uh, it sounds like, so, uh, so, hey, kids, don't wait till you're married. <laughs> but it sounds like, I can't quite tell, but it sounds like they, she and her husband at least have a somewhat open dialogue about this which I think is probably good. This is definitely, yeah, this is definitely more your wheelhouse than mine for sure. But it seems like um, the more open talk they can have about it, the better. And maybe it would be useful to get some kind of couples therapist involved if it's 
makes it more comfortable to say this, but I would start exploring. I'm kind of curious if maybe there are, I'm kind of curious if maybe this guy is, you know, gay. Oh my God, I can't <laughs> or at least... say that to a woman with a small <laughs> child, but I was thinking it. <laughs> 31 years old and he's never had sex, gay or asexual perhaps, or or so loaded down with religious guilt and, and, and shame that he might right. always be blocked sexually. One of those three could be it. You know, just zooming out for a second, you know, you said, Rob, the real problem may be unsolvable. And people frequently ask me about if there's bias at play in the, the advice column industry, our racket. And I'm always like, yeah, there is a bias toward the solvable problem. That you get all right. this mail that's just like, oh, wow, you're fine. You need a priest and a fireman. You don't need an advice columnist. <laughs> you need last rites and a, and a hook and ladder, and there's nothing I can do to help you. And you don't run those questions. And so you have this you, – you favor the questions where you could actually like say something that might be constructive. And in a situation like this, it's just teetering on the edge of the unsolvable. Like there are ways yeah. to solve this. You can be in a long-term committed relationship with someone where there isn't a strong sexual connection. But the only way you can do that without dying of sexual frustration, if indeed you have a high libido, is to have an allowance, to have an accommodation, to have yes. outside sexual experiences, to to acknowledge that the marriage isn't about sex. It's about partnership and friendship and companionship and intimacy and parenting and a household and a life together, but sex ain't what it's about. And we're not going to make each other miserable trying to jam sex in or trying to make sex work when it might never work. Give it a good faith try. And it sounds like you are, caller, giving it a good faith try. Faith yeah. being the problem probably initially, but I mean non I mean secular good faith try. And and at some point you're gonna have to throw up your hands and say, Well, this isn't working and maybe it will never work. How do we make it the relationship work? And that might require mm-hmm. opening it up. Yeah. And so it, when she talks to him about, I mean, I guess that this is why I think and if it's helpful to have a therapist do, if not, don't. But like she just needs to remember to have to be able to give this guy some room to, you know, it's not it's partly about her satisfying her libido, but it's also like make sure that he has room to say whatever might be on his mind (laughs) Mm -hmm. and, you know, to not be judgmental about it or whatever. And yeah, there are, obviously we live in the modern world. There are ways that this can be accommodated, but there's no guarantee. He might not be emotionally able to handle it. Like you could say like, well, why don't you just, you know, have uh, some series of things on the side. He might not be emotionally equipped for that. That's a high bar for a lot of people, particularly people who are virgins (laughs) until they're 31 because they're saving themselves for marriage because of Jesus. That, but that, to underscore your point, I'm in the same boat where sometimes it's like, yeah, you just need to quit that job, you know, and, <laughs> uh, and that's and that's and that's a legitimate response. Sometimes it's not really very useful. It's not really very and like you said, what, it's it's not what people want to hear. Not great advice column fodder. <laughs> I have this problem. Maybe you, you, you I focus on sex and relationships. You focus on work. You say often the advice that you want to give or might be most appropriate is quit that job. I have a problem that, you know, I could run columns for months and months and months at a time where the advice is always, as I like to say, DTMFA, dump the motherfucker already. But people don't want to hear that. And that would get very boring to read. Like people write in, they describe their terrible relationships and ask what they can do. And I'm like, you can end that. You can pull the fucking plug. Yeah. Walk. It's grandma and it's, she's 99 and it's a ventilator and just walk, pull the plug. It's over. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, and sometimes that's the truth, but I, I, you know, in our defense, it is worth trying to at least present as much 
fresh thinking as you can about, where, you know, if you want to run the table on possible solutions before you do that, I respect the idea that people reach out to people like us. I used to to kind of think like, what a strange thing to do to write to an advice columnist. But I kind of get it. You know, you need someone who's, um, it's useful sometimes to have uh, someone who's not emotionally invested in your life say, well, look, here's what's obvious to the outsider. And what you probably already, you know, what you person asking the question probably already knew. You just needed someone else to say it. Rob Walker, he writes the Workologist column every other week in the Sunday business section of the New York Times. It's a terrific column. I am a advice column junkie, and I seek out Rob's column uh, twice a month in the New York Times, and you should too. Thank you for jumping on the phone for a second opinion, Rob. It was really fun tackling a couple of questions with you. Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure, and uh, I've been reading your stuff for longer than either one of us wants to admit. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks a lot. I hope it's helped. Hi, Dan Savage. My name is Phyllis. I'm a 71-year-old calling to ask for your thoughts about an upsetting experience I had recently. I'm friends with a neighbor couple with a 12-year-old daughter in our small apartment building. While the wife and daughter were out of the country, I heard the man calling for help and used my key to get in. Strong across the living room were a bunch of old-fashioned photos of bare-breasted women. I remember thinking, oh, Johnny, you've got some splaining to do. When I went to the bedroom door, he said, I'm tied up. I tried to open it, but it was locked. I called 911 and various first responders attended to him asking me to stay outside. I heard an officer say he did it to himself. He learned how from a video. I asked if the man had injured himself. She said, yes, it's a good thing he didn't enter that room. It was not a pleasant sight. I also asked that officer who knows the daughter well through the community, do you think the daughter will be safe after this episode? She said that the police had checked out the man's background and they didn't feel that he was dangerous. Later, the neighbor left an abject policy note, apology note thanking me and promising me it would never happen again and asked to say so in person. I was afraid to see him again, but I knocked on the door. His face was very swollen, his eyes were bloodshot, and he looked generous, generally unkempt. He had on a bathroom that he get tightly closed around his neck, and I saw a fresh cut across the back of one of his hands. But to my surprise, I simply reached out and hugged him, saying, it's all right, everything is all right. He just seemed like an animal needing comfort. He thanked me profusely for saving his life, said he needed help, and that he just missed his wife and daughter too much, which seems to me like a rationalization. I told him I didn't judge him about his sexual activities and that I hoped he would get some help because he looked so tortured. I also said I wouldn't tell his wife about the I felt fearful about living next door and that they had a key to my apartment. I couldn't sleep. I felt that the depth of despair that would cause someone to so injure himself was full of darkness. Why do you think I felt so terrified? Is it just the idea that a person with such poor judgment might be untrustworthy? Should I tell his wife, even though I promised not to? Is there anything I should do in the future? Although I'm feeling better, I still wonder why I reacted as I did. I have to admit that listening to your call, I was a little distressed, not by his actions or not by... Uh, any danger that you might be in or his child might be in, but distress that you leapt from, obviously this guy has kinks that he he explores maybe on his own because his partner's not into them. And this is how he scratches that itch in the context of a monogamous relationship rather than going outside and doing it with somebody else. He does it when he's got some alone time and he got himself into trouble. And, you know, there's no data to back up the, the the leap you're making, the assumption you're making, or or your worry. It's not really an assumption. You're just concerned, and that's legitimate. There's no data that shows that people who are into bondage, who have these kinds of kinks, 
are a danger to their own children, a danger to their neighbors, or anyone else. Yeah, I just thought that I I thought it was the lack of judgment. That's what worried me not to do it to himself and and not be safe. Yeah, I'm right there with you. That was what worried me. (laughs) I'm right there with you. It's self-bondage is a thing, and you can find instructions on the internet. You can find porn about it on the internet. It is dangerous. People shouldn't do that because, you know, what if instead of living in an apartment building where he had a concerned neighbor nearby who could come to his aid, he lived out in the middle of nowhere and his family wasn't going to be home for three weeks, and then he starved to death in his bed. It's a bad idea, self-bondage. And the injuries that you saw, you know, it was probably – he probably struggled for a long time to free himself because he didn't want to be embarrassed because he didn't want to alarm or concern you or anyone else who might have to come to his aid. And it's possible that he injured himself in the struggle to get out, to free himself before giving up and calling in the cavalry, which was you. Yeah. You know, I, I talked with my son who actually turned me on to your podcast many years ago. Um, I talked with him about it and that's exactly what he said. The, the, the injuries I saw was probably just maybe from handcuffs or something trying to get loose. The struggle to get out, the struggle to free himself. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would honor his request not to tell the wife. You just, it's a bad idea, I think, to burst into someone else's marriage and tell those people what something that you think that they should know. Maybe, mm-hmm. or you could ask him if you really want to continue to have a conversation with him about it. You can ask him why he doesn't want his wife to know. But this is what you're likely to hear because we had a lot of fights about my kinks and, you know, we have a turn a blind eye now policy and I don't bother her about Mm -hmm. them. And she knows that I still have these fantasies, but I don't go outside the relationship. And Uh it would just, you know, it would be, we would have more fights about this thing that's kind of resolved. And the detente we've reached is I don't bring it up. I don't rub her nose in it. I don't do it with anybody else, but sometimes I jack off about it when I'm home alone. Yeah. And lots of people have crazy fantasies and lots of good and loving parents have crazy fantasies and do crazy sexual things with age appropriate partners and appropriate targets of their desires and people who share them in a consensual way. Or if they can't do them with anybody else because they have no partner or because their partner wants a monogamous relationship and that's the price of admission they're willing to pay, they do it alone or they explore it in fantasy. It doesn't make them – Bad parents, dangerous neighbors. It doesn't make them sex maniacs on the loose who are going to snap <laughs> one day and do to you or do to their kids what you caught him doing to himself. That's just not the way it works. Not the way any of this works. Yeah, I didn't connect the the, the kink to the idea of him hurting her. I, my 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 concern was that I thought maybe he had he was a person with bad judgment and maybe wasn't mentally stable and that that's what scared me because if he would do it to himself i wasn't worried about the kink itself i was worried about you know whether his judgment was safe you know i do i do wish there was a test that all parents had to undergo before they became parents about judgment (laughs) (laughs) the world would be a much better place and much happier kids if every parent had to clear the the good judgment in all circumstances and situations bar before they brought the kid home from the hospital but that, yes, doesn't, indeed. <laughs> that doesn't exist. People in the moment, particularly people whose penises are hard in the moment, sometimes make bad choices, foolish decisions that they instantly regret or they can see the problem with. I guarantee you, after first responders bursting down his bedroom door and having to look you in the eye and thank you and apologize, he ain't going to do this again. Lesson yeah, learned. I mean, part, part of good judgment <laughs> is learning from your mistakes. 
That's part of it too. It's trial and error learning from maybe he's done this a thousand times and this never happened. Well, what he said was, I'll never do this again. Not after today. So I thought he's done this before and he's been okay. So every other time he did it, there wasn't a shit show. Every other time he did it, he didn't get hurt. Nobody got hurt. So in his judgment, based on his experience, he wasn't doing anything that risky. Oh, yeah, I can see it that way. But now with this new experience, he can see that this can go south and it is indeed risky. So in a way, he's demonstrating to you good judgment. Like, hey, Uh I'm not going to do this anymore because I have good judgment. And now I've seen that this can go south and did go south. And so, yeah, this is off the menu. Oh, well, that's 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 a good way to look, look at it. I appreciate that. His main concern, I think, was... He he feared that he'd lost my friendship, and I was so that was so sweet, and I was so able to just say, "No, we're still friends. Don't worry about that." But you know that that was one of his main concerns. He wasn't. Even, I mean, he did say several times, "You saved my life. You saved my life." Mm-hmm. But he he wanted to be okay with me, which was really sweet. Or wanted you to be to not feel uncomfortable around him. You know, one of yeah. the ways in which we're able to interact socially with friends and neighbors and, and and people we're not intimate with is we kind of, we don't see or we don't think about who they are as sexual beings. We don't imagine their sex lives. We don't picture yeah. them. And in a way we kind of blot them out and we're in denial about them to some extent. Yeah. And so to, you know, walk in on mom and dad fucking is traumatizing for some kids or, you know, <laughs> older kids yeah. particularly because you don't think about your parents in a sexual way. And to be yeah. confronted with that is like, can be upsetting. And the same thing with neighbors, the same thing with coworkers. And so that's what kind of got pierced there that, you know, deniability and, you know, to be a friend and neighbor, those are non-sexual roles. And because of his (laughs) poor judgment in that moment, he sexualized your relationship in an unfortunate way and briefly. And so to walk that back and to get back to that turn a blind eye point place where, you know, you may have walked in on your mom and dad fucking once, but you, blot that out and you stuff it down the memory hole and you don't think about it so that you can sit there at the Thanksgiving dinner table and not picture mom and dad doing it. And (laughs) now for you, you have to do that same thing for him as a neighbor and a friend. You're going to stuff what you heard or saw down the memory hole so that you can have that friendship. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful because I I have seen him. I haven't seen him since the time when I hugged him and told him he was okay. I've seen his wife. She's home and I've had tea with her and, you know, but I haven't seen him. We're, the family and I are going to go to a concert together though. So I'll see him. And think of how <sighs> indebted he must feel to you and how grateful he must feel to you. I know he does. I, I just know he does. Cause he, you just see it in the way he talked to me. He was over and over, you know, you saved my life. You saved my life. And you know, who knows? He might've been choking and I don't know what, Yeah, that is another dangerous activity that we should throw out there that people should not engage in. I just lost a friend, you know, not a very close friend, but somebody was alone and doing breath play and accidentally killed himself just a just a couple of months ago. And this is not uncommon. You know, people talk about breath play being dangerous, and it is. But it always seems that when you hear about somebody dying doing breath play or choking, they're doing it alone. You almost never hear of someone dying doing breath play with a partner, with somebody else there in the room. So if that's what you're into, or if that's what he's into, he needs to not do that alone. Or it could have been much, much worse 
for you. You could have yeah. found something much, much worse when you went upstairs to check on him or his wife and kid could have walked in. Yeah. Yeah. And, and found him and dead. Course, and how traumatizing would that be? Yeah. So anybody else, anybody yeah. out there listening who's into breath play, who's into asphyxiation, please don't do it alone. Yeah, that was, as I said, the judgment thing that scared me was if he would take that risk alone. It just was, it just seemed to me he must be in a dark place. But that's where I conflated the, a negative piece of, piece of mind and the, and the kink, which it don't, don't, shouldn't be conflate, conflated with one another. But, and risk, people get a certain allowance for a certain amount of risk. Risk is built into desire. You know, people talk, remember the Clinton-Monica mm-hmm. scandal? Yes. Which was really not the Monica scandal. Monica didn't do anything wrong. It was the Yeah, really. And people were like, how could he do that? How dangerous, how risky. And I was sitting there at the time as a sex columnist going, that's why he did that. It's part of the thrill. Part of the thrill. (laughs) So it doesn't display bad judgment that people assume certain Uh, risks. You want to mitigate for them. You want to control for them. But everybody's sex Uh life involves a certain degree of risk. People are going to go home and get naked with someone that they just met. We're only just getting yeah. to know and don't know that much about. There's risk there. Even if all they're going to have is missionary position, vanilla, intercourse, heterosexual in a bedroom with the lights down, there's risk. Oh, yeah. And I look back on my, my pre-age uh, days. <laughs> <laughs> I took so too many terrible risks. You took you risks know? and yet you have good judgment and yet you took risks that those things can exist in the same person. Yeah. I think I have better judgment now than I did then when I was younger. Well, hopefully we all do. <laughs> the thing I but look at look at you have better judgment now than you did then through trial uh-huh. and experience, through trial and right. error. Just as your neighbor now hopefully has better judgment through trial and very serious error that almost cost him his life. Yeah. Better yeah. judgment now than he had before because of you because he's alive to have it because yeah. of you. Yeah. It was really lovely chatting with you. Thank you for calling. Well, thank you for calling me. <laughs> Hey, Dan. So I'm 23 and I have like kind of newly been identifying as bi. I have known that I liked girls for a long time, but I've always been in relationships with men. So it's kind of like a new thing for me. And I'm finally single. And I recently started seeing this like beautiful, smart girl who has a boyfriend. They're essentially monogamous and she's bi. And I was allowed to see girls. And the only catch is that her boyfriend, like, wants to watch her with the girl she's with, which I was fine with because I'm not shy. So we kind of started hooking up. And originally, I kind of had this idea about what her boyfriend would be like. And I assumed he was kind of like an open, semi-liberal person, like, fine with gay, bi, whatever people, because his girlfriend is bisexual. Um, But that's not really, has not been the case. Her boyfriend has kind of increasingly made me uncomfortable. He's like five years older than me, but he seems super immature. He makes lots of just crude sex jokes kind of about us hooking up. And he says like crap to his girlfriend that I would never let a boyfriend say to me. He's like really jealous of her with other men. Like if she like is friends with with guys, but he's like weirdly fine with, girls which makes me think he kind of like used this as a weirdly lesser thing and then kind of the kicker was that we all went to dinner the other day and he kind of jokingly referred to the lgbt community as like ltbg and was making fun of it and like doing this right in front of me and his girlfriend who are both bisexual and we were just kind of like you understand that you are making fun of bisexual people and we are bi and you get to watch this sex so it's gotten to the point where i can't 
like, come when we hook up. Like, I get her off and I can't come because he is there and it totally kills my mood. And then she is kind of upset because she likes getting me off. And, like, initially before I really knew him, it wasn't an issue. So I guess I kind of wanted to know, is there, like, a way that I can salvage this and just have technique used to blot him out of my brain because I like her a lot and she's awesome and sexy, but he just fucking sucks. No, no, there is not a way that you can salvage this. You can't make him not a shitty person. Although the one example you cite the LTBD community as targeted insults at queer people go, that's pretty small beans. I think of Dina Martina, the tremendous drag performer who's always thanking the BLT community for their support. And that makes me laugh. And a lot of people make fun of the ever expanding acronym abbreviation, whatever the fuck it is for the LGBTQ, LFTS, Q again, IA community. Our crazy out of order alphabet song is a little bit ridiculous and we should perhaps have a sense of humor about it. But obviously he's shitty in other ways that are unnerving. And if you don't want to have sex with him in the room, and the only way you're allowed to have sex with this girl that you're attracted to is with him in the room. Leave the fucking room. Walk the fuck out of the room. If you think that he's shitty and she shouldn't be with her because he's homophobic or biphobic, say to her, give me a call when you're single. Give me a call when your thing with shitty boyfriend is over because I would be down. But so long as our thing has to be mediated through his thing – and your thing with him? No, no, I'm not. I'm not interested. That's your leverage here. Your presence is your leverage. Use it. Maybe you'll end up with the girl all to yourself, or maybe you will then be free to go find some other girl who doesn't come bundled with a shitty boyfriend. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 512 and the guy who wanted his girlfriend to do anal and was seeking advice about butt plugs. I'm a little disappointed that you didn't comment more on his blatant entitlement over her body and lack of caring about her pleasure. I'm hoping it was just the way he phrased his call, but he didn't seem to care too much about what she actually wanted. The way he dismissed her not wanting to do anal as whatever and how the butt plug exploration was clearly more about him getting to finally do anal and not about her pleasure or sexual exploration was rather irksome at best. You did lightly touch on the fact that she might never do more than use a butt plug, but I wish you had emphasized more that no anal means no anal, and that if he really needs that in his sexual life, he should find a girlfriend who already likes that. If he wants to stay with this girl, he needs to be prepared that she might, in fact, have that negative experience and not like the butt plug, and that has to be okay, too. At the end of the day, it should also be about her pleasure and not just what's going to get his dick and her ass. I'm calling in response to the man who was questioning how he was going to bring up his desire to be pegged by his wife. And uh, I just thought that I'd mention that as a gal who uh, loves to peg, the thing that I love the most from the experience is being given full control in the instance and also being told how sexy I look with a huge cock between my legs. Um, so I would encourage him to kind of figure out what exactly it is that he would love about her doing that for him and really 
get outside of his own experience for a minute and think about what she wants and uh, what will make her feel really good in that particular situation. Um, and also, I mean, generosity begets generosity, right? Like, you could ask me to do just about anything after going down on me for quite some time. So uh, set her up. <laughs> I think it'll work. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm calling about your uh, episode 512, The Listener Who Has HIV. Uh, I just wanted to let you know, about a year and a half ago, my fiancé came home absolutely devastated because he found out he had contracted HIV and was convinced that I was going to break up with him. But because I'm an avid listener of your podcast, I just laughed at him and said, you're going to go on a cocktail and I'm going to go on prep and we're going to use condoms and everything's going to be fine. And lo and behold, it's totally fine. We've even had a couple of threesomes with some friends with full disclosure, of course. So tell your listener that there are people out there who understand what it's like in life. It's definitely going to go on. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you would like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Rob Walker on Twitter at NotRobWalker. The deadline for submissions to the Hump Film Fest coming up. They're September 30th at 3 p.m. You still have plenty of time get some friends and lovers together and make your own amateur dirty film for the hump film fest go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit for all the information you need about making and submitting a film to savage lovecast is produced every week by nancy hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk you and nancy we'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the savage lovecast 